ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming this evening. I'm Damien Chalmers, head of the European Institute here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. This is the latest in our Perspectives on Europe series, which is co-organised by the European Institute and ACPO Worldwide uh, Perspectives. And it's a great pleasure to have this evening uh, Carlos Gutierrez, the former Secretary of Commerce in the last administration in the US, to speak to us on, uh, for 25 minutes. What he's going to talk about, I think, is something that is worrying every European at the moment. I don't think it's really quite caught by the title we put up there, but it's how we get out of uh, the mess we're currently in. And undoubtedly, a large part of that is not going to be supplied by domestic consumption, but we're going to have to rely on the help uh, of the world economy, and that will necessarily involve the US. Now, there's really very few people that are better placed to, to speak about it. Uh, Carlos Gutierrez is currently chairman of Global Political Strategies, which is an executive service of APCO Worldwide. This is one of the top consultants, really, on political risk. It brings together, really, some of the, the top diplomats, thinkers, analysts to consider what will happen in the world political economy. But alongside that, he has an important and varied experience, both in government and in industry. He, as, I, as I mentioned, he was Secretary of Commerce in the last US administration. He negotiated a large number of agreements between the US and Latin America and ran an agency which had a budget almost the size of our last uh, latest cuts here in the UK of six and a half billion dollars. I mean, it'll soon be one-to-one -one parity between the pound and the dollar. So a little bit less than our cuts, but it did involve 38,000 employees. So if that's all we get rid of as a result of, the, result of those cuts, I'll be uh, delighted. Prior to that, he was also Chief Executive Officer of Kellogg. As I said, he'll be speaking for about 25 minutes. There'll then be time for questions. I hope you will join me in welcoming here to LSE. Thank you very much. Thank you, and uh, good evening. Thank you for being here. I appreciate your, your interest and your time. I, I've made some notes, and I'll, I'll try to make this very informal and, uh, and hopefully hear from you. So I'm very interested in your questions and comments and um, any advice you have or anything you don't agree with, I have a feeling there'll be a lot that you don't agree with. Um, and I'm hoping for that because I think that's where we, um, where we can get some value. But the, the interesting thing I found in being here in Europe at this time, uh, when everyone is talking about the uh, financial crisis and whether there's going to be a domino effect and uh, the so-called uh, Greek crisis and it, it's interesting that everyone is focused on the fact that that Greece has a huge debt level and that Greece has uh, a very large deficit. The reality is that there are a lot of countries like Greece um, that perhaps we're not talking enough about uh, one of those countries, ironically, is the U.S. And uh, I'll give you a few, a few facts that uh, perhaps will surprise you. And, and actually, the, the amazing thing about this point in time 
is that the countries that are in the most trouble, that have the, the, the largest difficulties, tend to be Western democracies. So, you know, the, the pillars uh, up until recently are the ones that are really struggling. So, um, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, budget deficit is about 11% of GDP. So 11% of the economy's size uh, is essentially negative, uh, which is huge. Just to give you an idea that the average, if you go back to World War II, the average is about 2.3%. We're talking about 11%, uh, you know, just tremendous numbers. Um, the only two countries, the only two large countries, and I'll have a more of a list for you in a while, but the only two large countries that exceed uh, the deficit in the U.S. are the U.K. Uh, you probably, you know, it's uh, your number one. And, um, and number two is Spain. So that means that the deficit in the U.S. is actually larger than the deficit in Greece which uh, I think if most people hear that, they would, they would think the numbers are wrong or they don't. Uh, Greece is about 9.9. .9. So, you, you know, you've got, this is something you, you have to address. You can't live with an 11% deficit. Uh, you can't continue to add losses. You, you know, if you think of a business, you can't continue to function that way. Um, and you've got really three ways of thinking about it, thinking about the solution. One is you grow your way out of it. Um, and, you know, a lot of the projections suggest that we will grow our way out of it. The projections are usually overly optimistic. Two is you can raise taxes and, and have the population pay for it. Somebody have, you know, have taxpayers pick up the tab. Uh, or three, you can cut expenses, which is what you hear a lot around Europe these days. I mean, Spain just a couple of days ago, the UK, uh, everyone seems to be looking at their budget and budget cuts are coming. I mean, that, that's one thing that you can prepare yourself for, uh, it seems to me, is, as, as someone coming in from the outside, is some pretty aggressive budget cuts. Here's the problem with the U.S. is that if you go back again, go back to the Second World War and look at look at budgets and look at expenditures, there you won't find one year, one year, where that year's government expenditures are below the previous year. So when you hear someone say, well, "We're going to cut our budget, we're going to have fiscal discipline, uh, we're going to reduce the size of government," that sounds great just know that it's never been done. So whoever is promising that in the U.S. is promising something that has not been done. And you all know that, that uh, President Reagan was, uh, was known for his fiscal discipline and, and, and cutting government spending. Not even under President Reagan did one year fall below the previous year. So it sounds like it's easy to do in Europe, at least the numbers just flow out and, uh, and people make the decisions, uh, but in the U.S. it's never been done. So I wouldn't bank on that. I wouldn't bank on 
somehow uh, the budget's being cut and, um, and, 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 and being able to avoid what I think is coming, which is an, an avalanche of taxes. Um, because that's usually the easiest thing to do in the U.S. system. And the way the U.S. system works, uh, the easiest thing to do is to find ways to increase revenue. Um, the concern that I have, and you seem to hear from you what you think, is the, the vicious cycle. It's a little bit like in a business, if you're not selling enough, it would be like saying, well, the, the solution to our low sales is to raise prices. In an economy like the U.S., if the solution is to raise taxes, chances are is you'll impact growth. And because you impact growth, you'll impact revenues. And because your revenues aren't achieving your targets, you'll probably have to increase taxes more. And you go into a vicious cycle, uh, which we have seen before. A lot of countries are talking about export-led uh, recoveries. Uh, I would love to see that in the U.S. And uh, President Obama has announced a very ambitious goal to double exports in five years. Um, which requires a very active trade agenda. Um, and this has been an administration that has been known for being very passive when it, becomes, when it comes down to trade. Uh, there, there are agreements with Korea, with uh, Colombia, with Panama that are just being held up. Um, so you can't just say, I want to export more without being willing to import more. Um, and that doesn't seem to be in the cards. Uh, the problems in Europe are very similar, as you well know. Um, I think it's safe to say, I, when I was in the, in, in the private sector, I was a bit of a Eurosceptic. I, I just didn't see it, didn't believe that you could actually uh, give people monetary guidelines and not be in charge of politics. So you, you don't have control over government, but you have the single currency. And what people are realizing now is that the single currency is kind of a, it's like buying into a portfolio of stocks. You're buying into a portfolio of economies. Um, and, and I think up to now people you know, had this, in, this sense, this impression that, that the euro was this you know, single one-dimensional rock-solid currency. Well. It really isn't. It's made up of economies like Greece and economies like Spain and economies like the UK and, 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 and economies like Germany. Uh, so I think that's had a, uh, a bit of, of a, it's been a bit of a jolting experience. And, and one of the lessons is it's very difficult to have a currency if you don't control the politics. How do you tell a country that they can't elect a president who wants to spend more money and go into deficits? the European Union doesn't have that level of authority. So I, I really do think that, that Europe is at a turning point, um, uh, inflection point, where you say are, you either go toward more central control and give authority to Brussels to be able to, um, to do punitive measures, to be able to hold countries accountable, or you head back to where we were some time ago, which I think would be a shame. 
but I don't think things can stay as they are. So in that regard, it's a fascinating time to be in Europe because one way or another, history will be made over the next three to five years. Uh, you all know that Maastricht uh, Treaty guidelines uh, had you know, very specific guidelines for countries that were going to uh, join the European Union. Uh, the deficit is a percent of, of GDP, if I, three percent. There are two countries in today that have a deficit that, are, that is below three percent of GDP. Uh, and both of them really are not part of the overall, you know, the big scheme of the European Union. One is Switzerland. They're not even in. The other one is Sweden, and they haven't signed up to the Euro. Those are the only two countries that are delivering on the treaty guidelines that we all signed up for, that all the countries signed up for, um, and that, you know, was part of the uh, the guideline to to actually become a uh, a member of uh, of the monetary union. Uh, you all know who Warren Buffett is. He uh, he was quoted recently as saying that you know when the tide goes in, you can tell who is swimming without a bathing suit. So the tide has come in, and uh, the the countries that are most exposed all of a sudden it's amazing. Um, but all of a sudden, is the countries is the group of so-called Western democracies, the group of countries that, up until recently, was leading the way. I mean, even during my time in government, when we met with China or India, we'd usually be, you know, telling people how to do it and telling other countries how it should be done because this is the way we do it and this is uh, all of a sudden the tide has come in and um, and the ones swimming without a bathing trunks are these big western economies that were supposed to be leading the way in the meantime what we have is an incredibly assertive Asia uh, within Asia a very assertive China, um, and they continue to grow um, economically, and they continue to grow in influence. Now, you just compare the stimulus packages that were put in place. Uh, the U.S. had an $800 billion package. China had a $500 billion package. There's no question that the Chinese package worked. Uh, there are still debates in the U.S. as to whether that stimulus package worked because it was such a, you know, a mix of political interests and political spending and patronage spending. And I think of the $800 billion, about $80 billion were actually um, geared toward infrastructure, which was the whole idea of the, of the stimulus. So what we have today is China willing for the first time in a long time to exert leadership in Asia. And I think they've decided it's, you know, it's our time not just to be a big participant in Asia, not just to be a big player in Asia, but we want to lead. And as I travel Asia, three years ago, five years ago, countries would be talking about the U.S. 
they'd be talking about doing more business with the U.S. or the European Union and how their exports are up to the European Union and how they've cut a new deal with the U.S. and uh, you know that would be essentially the focus of most companies, most countries. Today, uh, most countries are looking at China and they're saying, look, you're in a crisis, but thank goodness we've got China. Thank goodness we're exporting to China, we've just invested in China, we're building a new plant in China, and everyone is looking toward China, everyone in that region. Um, we just, I don't know if you saw, but last week was the big summit meeting, the U.S. and China. Um, it's called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue. Was anyone aware of that? Yes. Uh, previously, it was called the Strategic Economic Dialogue. And I can just imagine back in, in D.C., the interagency process, you know, all these departments get together and argue to add the word and. And somebody won. And they added the word and <coughs> to strategic and economic, which means that now, in addition to talking about the currency, in addition to talking about intellectual property rights, we're going to talk about everything. Um, so you probably saw Hillary Clinton got to Beijing and she made statements about North Korea. And Tim Geithner came in and he made statements about the currency. Now, I don't know if that's a new strategy to start linking these things, but if you're talking about a strategic and economic dialogue, it seems like there is a new policy of linkage in the U.S. Uh, which is going to begin to say if you want, if you want to do uh, if you want us to uh, uh, to give you certain technology, then you're going to have to play our game or play with us when it comes to Iran. I can't tell you that's the strategy. I'm not part of the inner circle, uh, but at least at least that's the way they're operating. Uh, President Hu Jintao, in his in his opening speech, basically said, "Look, we're going to move the currency at our pace, and we're going to do it at our speed." So. This was before the meeting. So it was a little bit like saying, if you were thinking about talking about the currency, here's our answer. Now let's go to the meetings. So, you know, it was very, uh, very quickly um, resolved. The big issue today for companies is uh, the Chinese government has announced something they're calling indigenous innovation, which means that if down the road, if this law passes, if you're selling technology that hasn't been designed and patented in China for China, the government won't buy it. And you know, you can imagine that most companies are, are, are up in arms over this because this would shut out um, a lot of multinationals from the government procurement process. And, um, and China hasn't signed on to the WTO uh, government procurement rules. So that, that's probably the, the, the single biggest economic issue that, that companies are having to deal with. In the meantime, here, here's the big threat um, from, a, from a commerce and trade standpoint. The, China is leading something called uh, ASEAN plus three. Um, you all know ASEAN. So how many countries are in ASEAN? 
about 10 countries. So it's, you know, everything from Indonesia all the way to Vietnam, Cambodia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines. It's a huge area. Um, and it's been uh, and it's it has been a, an, a a trading area. ASEAN plus three is that huge area, plus Japan, plus Korea, plus China. Without the U.S., without the European Union, and importantly, without the U.S. dollar, and without the euro. So. Chances are that the idea, the, the, the vision, is to use the renminbi as the currency in that part of the world. Now you're talking about a, a very major move that will impact the world from, from a commerce standpoint. Um, and the problem is, you know, this is, this is happening and they're moving forward and they're getting their act together while the Western democracies are trying to figure out how to deal with deficits that are in the double digit. And that's going to shape the world over the next three to five years. Um, we're cleaning house, they're building houses. And uh, while, while we're standing still, they're moving forward uh, very, very quickly. Let me just give you some, some numbers just to give you an idea of, of the um, the difference in economies. Uh, th these are deficits, okay? So just deficit as a percent of GDP. Uh, the UK, 12.8%. That's the gold medal. Uh, the uh, world leader, the US, 11%. Spain, 11.5%. Greece, 9.4%. France, 8.4%. Germany, the most disciplined economy, you know, in, in theory. What do you think Germany is? I mean, this, this is the, the disciplined German economy. What would you say is their uh, deficit as a percent of GDP? Three? Five point six. So now let's look at these other Asian economies, okay? The ones that, that, that are forming part of this ASEAN plus three. China's deficit, three percent. So China could be part of the euro, I guess, because they've. Um, uh, Japan is the outlier, you know, 7.9, and and Japan is you know a, a key issue. Korea four, Singapore 2.7, Indonesia 2%, Thailand 3.7. Here you're talking about pretty well managed budgets. So not only are they healthier from the from a budgetary standpoint. But look at the growth that economists are projecting. Uh, growth in the U.S. projected to be about 2.5%. This is 2011. The U.K. about 2%. France, 1.5%. Greece, minus 1.5%. Italy, 1%. Germany, 1.5%. Spain, 0.9%. This is 2011, and, and these could be pretty optimistic. Uh, Asia. Indonesia 5.9, Malaysia 4%, Singapore 4.6, Korea 4%, Thailand 4%, China 8.1, Japan the outlier 1.7. You're talking about some amazing differences in the health of the budget and the rate of growth. Uh, so uh, my bet would be 
that Western economies are going to lose share, we're going to lose influence, and uh, we, we better be ready for a, an increasingly strong and assertive Asian region, uh, which will have a lot more influence in whether it's the UN or the G20 uh, or the G8 or whatever other body um, is, is trying to sort out uh, the, the new world order. Um, so the big question that I would ask, and, and, and maybe you can help me answer, and where I think we are exposed the most is what, what happened to democracy? Is are we seeing the limits of democracy being tested? And the only reason that we're seeing these limits being tested is because we have a competitor who has a different model who is capable of testing the limits of democracy. This didn't happen 25 years ago because you know the world was kind of bipolar and we had one system that wasn't a very effective economic system. Uh, Marxism, Leninism did not prove to be um, an effective way to grow an economy and to prosper. So Western democracies look pretty good. No matter how, you know, how wobbly we looked, we look better than the other side. We look better than our counterpart. All of a sudden, we have this economic competitor, and I, say, I, say I use the word competitor in a, in, in, in a friendly sense an economic competitor who runs their country like a company. I mean, the, the, the Chinese government runs China a little bit like General Electric runs General Electric. They give their governors targets, they give them money, and they say, you better deliver on these targets for employment, on these targets for, um, for growth, and just like you would to a business unit manager. Uh, their people development systems are, they, they look like General Electric's people development system or any other big multinational firm. Uh, you've got someone who's a mayor and doing a good job, so they say, well, let's move that mayor over to be a minister. And after they've been minister for three or four years, we're gonna move them over to be governor. So they're developing a cadre of super managers who stay in government and who are able to move quickly because, like a business, they make decisions quickly, and they don't, you know, they don't need um, the turmoil that is our system of government. Now I hope that statement I made is wrong. But anyone who has watched um, the U.S. at work, and um, anyone who watched the health care bill being put together, would would wonder how that system can compete with a system 
that moves as quickly and as effectively as China. Uh, you know, health care bill of 2,000 pages. Uh, it's a well-known fact that a lot of people didn't read the bill. Um, people would tend to vote for things because it would get them elected in two years. We, ha we have a system where every two years a representative of the House uh, is up for re-election. So their goal in life, unfortunately, is get re-elected. And I have been in meetings where I'm asking them to do something and they'll say, look, I know this is the right thing for the country. I know this is the right thing to do. But I can't do it because I won't get reelected. And that's the system. That's the system that we are working with. That's the system that we're counting on. And uh, the question is, uh, is that is that good enough? Is, is that going to be um, the way things are going to work in the future? And if you had one company that ran that way and that made decisions that way um, versus another business that was quick, agile, assertive, they knew what they wanted, they were aligned, who do you think would win? And that comparison wouldn't have been made 20 years ago. It's being made today because of the, of the growth and the rise of this amazing economy um, and this amazing system in, in China. Um, so I think it's a time for leadership. I would hope that around the world um, crises like these usually um, usually create great leaders and um, great leaders meaning that they're going to make difficult decisions, big decisions, decisions they'd rather not have to make, but they're going to make them because it's a moment of crisis. Uh, and, and for me that, that really does mean politicians who are capable of putting their country first over their own personal you know, uh, interests and are willing to make the types of decisions that they're not willing to make today. Today it's very tough to make big decisions in the US Congress. Why? Because, pe because it's a, people want to get reelected. Because it's not politically convenient. And we're not going to get out of this crisis unless we have um, the ability to make big calls. We're not going to get out of this crisis by playing small ball, by tweaking, by pretending that we're doing things, by creating commissions. It's going to have to be real leadership. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to define what, what really is the role of government and what do we want government to be and um, and after you define the role of government you're probably going to have to reorganize and you're going to probably have to shift resources um, I'll give you an example in the um, the, the health care bill in the US just created 100 new 
uh, government organizations. 100 new bureaucracies. Is that good? Is that going to make it more effective? Is that going to simplify it? My guess is it's going to make it awfully complex. Um, I did some work in my department in commerce. We had um, the, uh, the, the National OSHA, o, the o Oceans and Fisheries were part of commerce. Um, it's a long story why, but they were just, someone decided, look, the oceans and all of the fishing rules and guidelines should be part of the Commerce Department. So we did uh, climate change studies, and that was, um, that was part of our responsibility. The, um, the interesting thing is that there were 13 other departments who were also in charge of climate change studies. So within this massive government, no one is in charge of everything. So things are going to have to be reorganized. Someone with a heck of a lot of vision and a heck of a lot of guts is going to have to take it on. I hope, I hope that person is Barack Obama because he's the person sitting in the White House. He's the person in the Oval Office. Uh, but we're not going to get through this uh, with, with typical kind of, you know, political, um, political maneuvering which you see all over the world. Uh, you see a lot of, instead of strategic thinking, what you see is a lot of tactical maneuvering. You know, your, your decision for the day is based on tactics. It's based on what happened yesterday. It's based on what people are saying. It's based on whether people are mad at the, at the chancellor because she helped Greece. So now we're going to create a new law to ban short selling. Does that make sense? Is it the right strategy? Who knows? But that's what people want. That's what is going to help me keep my job. And that's what we're going to do. All tactical all tactical. We're going to have to change that to a lot more strategic. Uh, our tax systems are way out of whack. Uh, the U.S. tax code, I believe last time I heard, if you put the whole thing together, you're talking about 200,000 pages. Okay, not, not the 2,000 pages of the health care bill, but the 200,000 pages of the tax code. So you can't figure out your own taxes. You have to hire someone. Uh, and even then, you don't know if they're good enough. You don't know if they've read the 200,000 pages. It's ridiculous. And it's all full of, you know, political commitments and a certain clause for one industry and another interest group that happened to get their way. And it, it's like that, not just in the U.S., but in many, many uh, Western democracies. Um, and I think we're going to have to flip that around and look at a totally new system, whether it's a flat tax system or whether it's a consumption tax or whether it's a dip. But we can't just keep saying, take it up again. Take it up a notch. Um, Social, Social Security, when it first started, was 1% of, of, uh, of payroll coming out of people's checks, workers' checks, 
taxpayers' checks, and the other 1% uh, came from the government. Today, that's up to 6.25 and 6.25. I guess we can take it up to 8, 8 and 8, maybe 10 and 10. Why not? But eventually, that system is going to break. So that is going to have to be re-engineered. Um, and then this idea of um, term limits, I think, is probably the right time for it. But how do you get people to vote themselves out of office? Because for term limits, you have to have a supermajority in the Congress. Uh, but this idea that it's good to have politicians who are so clever that they can just get reelected every two years. And they stay in, we, we have members of Congress um, that have been around for 30, 40 years. And, and they know how to get reelected. And it's not, it's not about uh, you know, what's right for the budget or what's right for the, the total country. It's, it's what's going to get me elected back home. And if that means um, you know, doing my share to increase expenses at a time we can't afford it, that's what it means. Um, I would much rather have a system where people come in, they serve for maybe four or six years, and then they go back out into civilian life, into non-political life. But those are the types of decisions that are going to be very tough. Um, a total re-engineering if, if we're going to be able to compete against new models that are surfacing. And um, I don't believe that China's endgame is to be a Jeffersonian democracy. I, I, I just don't think that there are, are, are parliamentary democracy. I, I just don't think that's, that's the way they see the world. They have their own system. They have their own history. They have their own culture. And uh, the idea that if they don't see the world as we do, they're wrong. I, I just don't think we can continue to, to lecture the world with the same talking points as we've had for probably, you know, four or five decades. So the good news is that it'll be people like you dealing with these problems. Um, it'll be people coming out of universities and people entering the public service. I hope you go into public service uh, because we're going to need leaders um, and, and leaders who really, really want to lead, who have the will to lead. I know a lot of people who like to be the boss. I know not as many people who want to lead and who are willing to take on the burden of leadership. Uh, and I hope there are several of you in this room uh, who are willing to do that when you go out into the, the world and, uh, and fix our problems. So uh, I'm going to stop there. And uh, thank you for your attention. I, I want to hear from you. And uh, I want to hear what's on your mind. Thank you. <clears throat>
an excellent point and I, I agree with you and it's it's already happening you know it's interesting when the when the G20 get together they, they always you know sign a declaration saying let's let's avoid protectionism but there's protectionism everywhere um, and it's surfacing and it, you know we, we were criticized because our our stimulus package had a buy American clause so if you didn't if the product wasn't made in the US uh, it couldn't be bought with stimulus money. And we had things like, you know, a product where one part was made in Canada, was only made in Canada, that product couldn't be bought, you know, the, the, that sort of thing. But it's happening in every country because, as you say, at a time of crisis, everybody has to look out for themselves or everybody's looking out for themselves. When what would help the crisis would be, for example, if we had a successful WTO round, um, of, uh, of trade talks, which is, uh, I, I think is, if, if, if the talks aren't dead, they're in, in critical shape in the intensive care unit. So uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we have, a, we have an example in the U.S. right before the, the Great Depression. This is actually a Republican president, President Hoover, put in place something called the Smoot-Hawley Tariff. And it was designed to lower imports so that we could protect American jobs um, from, from foreign imports. What happened is that the rest of the world retaliated. And they said, well, if we're not going to export to you. You're not going to export to us. And a lot of economists believe that that is what drove a recession into a depression. That kind of um, isolationism around the world. Uh, so I, I think it's a great point and I, I just hope that we continue to remind people of history because the more we go down that protectionist road, the harder it will be to, to lift economies out of this problem. Thank you. Okay,
I, I think there's a, there's a possibility of a deal on export controls. Um, export controls were, were put in place for uh, items that were military end use or dual use items after the 1989 incident in Tiananmen Square. And uh, I think what's happened, you know, dual use items are, there are a lot of, a, a lot of parts that are, that can be used to manufacture a bicycle or a tank. So there's a lot, you know, it's a big range of products that can't be exported to China, but China can just buy them from other countries. So I think that's an area where potentially there could be an opening. And, and that's, I don't have any inside information, that's just as an observer. The market economy status is, uh, is a bit tougher because that, that'll require Congress to be on board there are six criteria for market economy status, um, and you know, one of them is, for example, that the currency be free floating, or the currency be driven by by the marketplace, not not controlled, um, and a few others that um, that will be tough to justify. Uh, so what they'll probably do is create a task force to work together to see how you know we can. We, we can feel comfortable about the market economy status, but I, I think a deal on the technology side is, uh, is more feasible. That, that's my point of view. Who knows? We'll see. So, could we just, I do apologize, there's about 20 questions. People ask me, so come out at this time, just gentlemen here, and then. It, it just just uh, three brief points under the headings of devaluation, innovation, and imbalances. Um, I just wonder if you're being too gloomy because obviously what was um, you know we've seen it here in, in Britain our, our currency devalued by about 25 percent it hasn't fed through I think as quickly into exports as people thought but certainly you're actually paradoxically now seeing the situation where Germany is about to benefit from its mishandling of the Greek crisis because of the weakening of the euro so it's going to actually make its exports more competitive and maybe the growth rates that you uh, which are projected for next year will, actually be, will be higher. The second thing is an innovation mm -hmm. is that you know the United States is still way ahead of, of uh, China in terms of R and D and in terms of innovation. The LSE runs a very good China Development Forum. Um, I think it's in its third year now. And one of the main features that came out of this year was in fact you know, just how far behind China is economically in terms of innovation. And the final point is, is this business of global balances, and of course we've now got it replicated with eurozone imbalances. You know that uh, uh, China is the is the demon internationally for saving too much, and uh, Germany is the demon within the eurozone. Now, I think in terms of the China stimulus, just very quickly, in terms of the infrastructure, obviously authoritarian, they can feed it right through. Yeah. Some people say the infrastructure, the developments that they're now undertaking are way ahead of actually what their economy needs. It might have been better if they developed a welfare state, which would actually have encouraged the Chinese to reduce their savings, because they keep their savings for their health services, etc., because yeah. they don't trust yeah. the government. And yeah. so that would help international <clears throat> growth. Similarly, as Christine Lagarde has said very critically, the, the Germans need to spend more. Consume. Yeah, the uh, on on the first point, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I I don't believe China will take away their currency peg is because of what's happened to the euro. So uh, 
and it gives them to a certain extent it gives them a justification and a pretext to say we can't do it your second point I think you're right on and I failed to mention that and it without mentioning what you just said this is a you know 100% doom and gloom the reality is that 95% of the world's in it real innovations big breakthrough innovations happen in Western democracies and happen in the US China hasn't learned to innovate yet and and aside from that I mean they're essentially manufacturing what others have innovated and and then innovations require that they be sold on a global scale there are no there are no Chinese global companies they don't have the global management skills so I totally agree and and you know in terms of the the economic takeover of the world I don't see that because of that because the US system is clumsy is slow is frustrating but the magic of the system is that people are free to innovate and it's worked I mean it just it's 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 phenomenal you probably all saw the story this morning that Apple is now a bigger company than Microsoft but Microsoft wasn't around 40 years ago I mean it's just it's an amazing it's an amazing innovation machine that is created by new businesses in the US fifty percent of all new jobs are created by companies that are less than five years old and though that's all innovation so point well taken and the yeah the reason the Chinese the reason they save so much money and you know consumer spending is seventy percent of our economy and I think seventy percent of the UK in China it's about thirty-five and what people save their money because they don't have pension systems they don't have health care systems the family takes care of the family so instead of spending they're going to you know they save it one of the things that we talk about when we meet with the Chinese is please spend more so that we can save more the problem with that is it's going to take a long time I mean you're talking about a seven thousand dollar per capita income country versus a forty thousand dollar per capita income country you just can't say let's just you know reverse the imbalances I'll save money now you spend money but yes the 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 point is well taken that the 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 Chinese the Chinese are saving too much and spending too little and in the US we tend to spend too much and save too little and yes
stimulate the economic growth and to create a new job. But uh, do, what do you think the new, the new kind of demand will come from? Is there any kind of new demand uh, that could link the two economies more closely? The U.S. and the EU? U.S. and EU, yeah. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I came, I came to the U.K. two days ago with this, and I can't charge it here because it's a different standard in the U.S. versus the U.K. Um, and there, you'll find that throughout Europe and throughout the U.S. And to get at that and to start harmonizing standards is, is a horrendous bureaucratic challenge. Um, the European Union is a, you know, is, is, is sort of an abstract concept. Who has the authority? I don't know if you recall Henry Kissinger's point of, we want one phone number. Well, whose phone number is that to negotiate? Uh, so you negotiate with commissioners, but they don't have any authority to, uh, to implement at a local level. Um, the 900 regulators in Brussels are doing a wonderful job of regulating. <laughs> and, and those regulations tend to be very different than the ones in the U.S. So it's a, an enormous opportunity to, to, to think more strategically about how the U.S. and the EU can do more business together. Um, but the, the implementation is going to require, um, again, e enormous leadership to get that done. I think a lot of the investment that has taken place in Europe and in the U.S., European companies in the U.S., U.S. companies in Europe, is investment that has been around for decades. You know, my old company, we invested in a plant in the U.K. in 1930. So big plant and big business, but I wasn't putting new capital in Europe. It was going someplace else because Allocating capital in Europe was just, it, it doesn't return. It wasn't returning. And that's something that the, the EU and, and those in charge of deciding where they want to take Europe need to look at. That a lot of companies don't see Europe as the best place to, in, in which to allocate their capital. You, you, Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to point another question. Uh, so you had a question? No, it was just, uh, just like uh, going back to the uh, question before this one. Like that was an active policy that was sought by, let's say, the Western democracies. So there is a way back down. So uh, there should be, what you were uh, suggesting is that there should be a reversal of policies. And the thing is that why would the Chinese, not only the Chinese, let's say Indians or any other Asian countries, why would they do that? And very recently, what I am uh, noticing is that uh, there has been a policy suggestion, there has been an investment strategy suggestion that the strong Asian banks should uh, buy more of the troubled uh, Western financial institutions to save them. That also seems like a very unfair suggestion to me. If you look at like uh, the Economist of uh, the last week, uh, there was a uh, there was this complimentary section of. Uh, uh, emerging market financial institutions where predominantly Western uh, financial analysts suggested that very openly and that's it very unfair. Why would they uh, push
boost their the stable institutions by buying uh, troubled institutions, push those institutions into danger as well. So, so, so having having emerging market banks buy developed. But exactly. So it doesn't make any sense. It's like yes, you are not in trouble. Come and join us. And just minutes ago, a couple of minutes ago, you were suggesting a West-West alliance. That's not going to save anyone. I'm not trying to contradict you, sir. Yeah, no, no, I'm I, trying I, to I make understand. One I is that West-West alliance didn't work. And the and, yeah, yeah. And the thing is that, like after the Cold War, still United States, particularly, was trying to make and this. Now it has blown itself way down through Barack Obama because he's a more understanding leader. It made lots of unilateral decisions. It ignored the UN. It ignored the rest of the world. That is exactly the attitude that United States, States has to change. And when will that happen? I, I'm sure it's happening well, already. I'm not complaining. President Obama. I'm just trying to say that it has to change. Like, it just cannot take decisions unilaterally. Yes, Chinese policies, the government, I think it's unfair. You cannot run something like that. You cannot run something that uh, unilaterally. Definitely, the democracy is an amazing thing. United States showed that, giving opportunities, opportunities to people. But yes, but then again, <laughs> see. Yeah, the, fr from the U.S. standpoint, it, you know, the unilateral decisions, uh, it, it's interesting that uh, what I heard throughout Asia, and what I hear throughout Latin America a lot is, where is the U.S.? Why has the U.S. backed away? We need U.S. leadership. So, you know, when the U.S. is involved, it's too involved. When it's not involved, it should be involved. So, I, you know, we get criticized, um, we get criticized both ways. Um, I don't know about calling China's system not fair. Uh, you know, what do the Chinese people think? Um, do they think it's fair? Uh, you, they're, they're, they're building off uh, a couple of thousands of years of history where uh, their leaders are like the head of the family. And they behave towards their leaders the way they're used to behaving toward the heads of their family. We can't understand that, but that doesn't mean they can understand us. So uh, I think that's, you know, one of the things where, uh, if it's the point you're making, I, I, I would agree with you. Our foreign policy was was very much about, you know, let's Americanize the world, and globalization cannot be Americanization because the rest of the world won't stand for it. Um, but that's different than leadership. And I think the world likes U.S. leadership. I think the world likes the fact that um, that when a crisis occurs, the billion-dollar checks very often come from the U.S. And that when something goes wrong, the U.S. is there to help. Um, I think it's different than being uh, than, than than taking advantage or. Uh, 
generations that are coming back to haunt us today. We've all made mistakes. Um, but where I come down, and I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I, I think the U.S. has been a tremendous force for good. Um, and we'll see. I mean, we'll, we'll see your theory play out because we have a president who believes more like what you do, which is that the U.S. should be part of the team and not necessarily leading the team. And, uh, and, and we'll have a chance to, to learn from him. You know, we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I think the way he's dealing with, uh, you know, people in the neighborhood, Chavez Castro, is, uh, is very different than, than other presidents. Um, his approach to the Middle East, his approach uh, with Iran. Uh, what's going to happen with Korea? You know, I mean, that's an amazing thing that uh, 43 people were killed. And the, uh, the report suggested that it was a Korean uh, military, uh, you know, assault. And you hear Secretary Clinton saying, well, we're going to hold the North Koreans accountable. What does that mean? You know, I mean, what, what power is there going to, you know, is, is, will be put in place to actually hold the North Koreans accountable? Uh, but it's a more passive approach. She talked about, you know, how the Obama administration wants dialogue. We don't want to push anybody around. We don't want to do something that that China may not agree with. So um, we'll see what happens. My, my sense is that as the U.S. backs away a little bit, um, that there are some countries that feel like they have a license for mischief. I may be wrong, but let's, let's observe it over the next couple of years. I appreciate your point. It's a good point. Gentlemen, that has been my pleasure. Just wanted to get your thoughts on the possibility of introducing VAT value-added tax in the United States because it's the last major industrialized country without one. We had Paul Volcker a couple of weeks ago who thought it was a pretty good idea. So do you believe that it is a good idea? And if it is, is it possible to introduce one given the current political climate in the United States? That's a very good question. I, I think it is being considered. I think it is, uh, you know, in the, in the halls of uh, the Treasury Department, I think it is one of the options. Um, I, I'm sort of glad that the U.S. is the last country not to have VAT because um, I, I personally believe that the government doesn't do as good of a job with your money as you do. So the, the, the more the taxes are increased, that money is allocated in a less efficient way than if other people allocate that money. And an economy is only as good as how you allocate the capital. Um, I think it will be very tough to pass a VAT through the Congress unless it's a it's a uh, a, a modest amount. I think it will be very, very tough, especially since it's not going to be done this year, and the majority that the Democrats have today, it may not go away, but it's going to be reduced. 
and that's going to make it a lot tougher to, to get to get that through. That's a good point. Yes. Okay. Sorry, uh, gentlemen, uh, yes, you, you said on you as well. Curious. Um, one of the countries you didn't mention was, was Canada, and I was wondering how that would fit because it's sort of there's a couple of themes that, uh, that you sort of extrapolate uh, when you talk about Canada. There you say sort of a we didn't have a banking crisis. B we had less of a savings, uh, uh, yeah. more of a savings, higher savings rate. We tend to um, export a lot more to China. Is what we do. We're also quite reliant on the United States, and also we have a parliamentary democracy, which is at the moment is is churning out minorities, but has traditionally churned out majorities in the last about five years. So I'm curious. Um, I'm curious about what you think of what what maybe the United States can look Canada because we we usually hear it the other way around. What yeah. I think you're right. Canada is like one of the uh, one of the exceptions. Look across the board, uh, the growth rates, uh, the uh, financial, the way they weathered the financial crisis, uh, the way that. Um, that they're dealing with uh, with their exports. It's interesting that when everybody started putting stimulus packages in place, uh, the first person to stand up and um, and caution against protectionism was Prime Minister Harper. And not only that, but he actually lowered tariffs just to show people that Canada was willing to move forward. Um, the other area where Canada, I would say, uh, leads is in immigration policy. We're having trouble with immigration, as you know. I mean, we just, it, it, it's another one of those issues that is so big that, you know, the, the, the leadership uh, is not there to deal with it. Uh, Canada has a very smart immigration policy, and, it, and it's working, um, I think, very effectively. The other country, by the way, that I would put in that group with Canada, or in that very small set, is Australia. Um, also, and you know, Australia has the great benefit of, of, of being kind of a quasi-Asian country and a Western, and, but Australia and Canada are the two large, um, you know, advanced, developed economies that I think have done uh, extremely well. Prince, of the last question, just the gentleman. Yeah, they come back to uh, Euro and the dollar. Um, your, your solution for the Euro is more political um, integration, is the only way to uh, solve the individual states not being able to budget uh, properly. But we don't have that uh, luxury to do that quickly. So, uh, what, what do you feel in the way of the US experience? Because you have the federal budget and you have your states' budget. Something there that says, okay, you should let individual states' budgets in the euro, in, in the euro go bust if they if they're in that sort of situation. Or what, how would you? Well, we. It, it's a good question, um, and I don't, you know, I, I can't claim to have the solution for the European Union. What, what uh, some people believe that what what will eventually happen is that you may have a few tiers of. European Union. So if 
Germany and France and others are really, really, really committed to a more central system, then that may be one tier. And UK and others who don't want it, that may be another tier. But that's down the road. I think what you do now is, is you have no choice but to let the nation states deal with their budgets because the problem is happening at a nation state level. I don't believe that <coughs> the world community will let you know a country just go into a free fall. Um, I think somebody will be there to help and somebody will be there to bail them out. The reason it doesn't happen in the US as often is that there are balanced budget amendments in the Constitution of, of a lot of states. So they have no choice but to have, I mean, it's against the law to have a deficit. So a lot of those states just have no choice. They have to have a deficit, and sometimes that means that they don't have the services or their taxes are huge. Um, one of the problems, though, that, that's happening with the U.S. Uh, budget is that it's being pushed down to the states. So the federal expenditure is about 25% uh, of GDP. About five years ago, it was 18. If you go back to Franklin Roosevelt's time, it was about eight. So, you know, but to get the full picture of the government, you have to add the states. And the states are about another 25%. So the government, per se, is coming up to about 50. Um, but I, I think the individual countries are going to have to deal with their individual problems. There's going to be an overlay of support from either the European countries or the IMF uh, or the World Bank. Um, but I, I just don't think that we're going to allow, um, you know, countries to fail, to, to sort of go bankrupt and, and, and going to, I don't know, liquidation mode or uh, perhaps do a, you know, a chapter 11 where they renegotiate their debt. Um, but, you know, we're in uncharted waters. We're, we're, we're truly in, in a place where we've never been before. Um, I, what do you think do you think the trend is toward a more centralized Europe or back to a more decentralized Europe? And I, I ask you because I'm curious about what people think about this because this is going to have to be decided at some point in the near future. Firstly, uh, it depends which country you sit in. You get very Spain, they were very pro Europe. 